This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. I'm going to read this morning if you'll look there on the back or actually look underneath the title there on the front for the opening scripture or turn, turn in your Bible if you want. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 1 to, 1 to 5. 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. Before I read these, have, have you ever thought about Paul's last words? The last real meaningful thing he ever wrote. Really, we're going to read it this morning, right here in 2 Timothy 4. This is, this is it, right before he died, shortly. He said this, if you'll notice down about verse 9, if you have a text open, he, he begins to tell Timothy, do your diligence to come to me by winter. And he talks to him about how Demas has forsaken him. And he goes on to, to talk about issues like that. Not so much things that he really wants Timothy to, to be aware of and, and to really impress upon him. So here's his final charge. And then we'll talk about what it is. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. These are really the final words, basically, that Paul had to Timothy, because he goes on to say in the next verse, For I'm now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. You can see this is the final message to Timothy. And the final message concerns the importance of the Word. It really concerns the importance of truth and of doctrine and of making sure that our doctrine is sound. This concerned Paul right before he left this earth. Final words, you might say. And we have a lot of people today who think that doctrine's really not all that significant. It doesn't make that much difference. It's really not that important. But you and I know that truth is the beginning of everything. And when we start out to be, be saved, you know, the, the first truth we've got to face is, is there a God or not? Is He real? Is, does He really exist? Is Jesus Christ the Son of God? That's the next thing we consider. Is He the Christ? There's truth about that and there's error about that. There's truth about the plan of salvation. There's doctrine about that and that doctrine is critical. And if we don't know the true doctrine about how to be saved, we're not going to be saved. Doctrine is really that important. It affects, in other words, everything about our religious life. It affects the life we live. It affects the morals that we have. It affects everything about us. It's all based on doctrine and upon the Word of God and upon truth. And so he tells Timothy then, preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season. He says, I want you to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. That was his tool. Because he said the time's going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine. 
and they'll gather to themselves teachers, and they'll have itching ears. And there's always teachers that will scratch those itching ears. And they'll gather teachers, and they'll have itching ears, and they'll turn away their ears from the truth. And he said they'll be turned unto fables. And so he, he admonishes and commands Timothy then to continue to preach the Word and to take heed to the doctrine, basically. That's his final message. You know, I wish I had grown up hearing this message. I didn't grow up hearing it. I did not grow up like some of you also didn't grow up, having the importance of God's Word and following that Word emphasized. Now you that were raised in the church, you that were raised in a solid Christian home where the Bible was respected, where God's Word was, was studied, where it was taught faithfully and adhered to, how blessed and how fortunate you are. Because think about your formative years and how that blessed your life. And think about those teenage years and the, the, the times that you went through back then. All the temptations, everything that you confronted, decisions that had to be made, did that not help you? And there are so many of us that didn't have that advantage in our life. We just had to stumble through those years the best we could. And maybe we were brought up in a moral home and maybe we were brought up in a good family. And we were taught good manners and decency and different things like that, but we really never had the importance of truth and doctrine impressed upon us. And it just never was part of our experience. I had such an experience as that. I'll tell you about it in just a minute. We have a lot of false doctrine in the world today, a lot of false teachers and teaching. And that doesn't surprise any of us if we're familiar with the Bible because the Bible warns about it in many places. I want to look at four different warnings. Christ, Paul, Peter, and John. And I'll do these rather rapidly, so stay with me there on the back. In Matthew 7, 15, Christ gave this warning. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. There's the warning. Beware of them. And then Paul gives this warning in 1 Timothy 4, 1-3. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly or clearly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. And then there's the warning from Peter, Second Peter chapter one or two rather, verses one and two. Peter said, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. There's Peter's warning. And then John gives a warning. In 1 John 4, verse 1, when he said, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. There's Christ and Paul and Peter and John, four different men giving us that warning, plus the scripture we read there at the beginning, the very final words of Paul. I wish I'd known about these verses. I should have. You know, I could have uh, been reading my Bible, but I never was really encouraged to as a, as a young person. Nor was it faithfully taught in the churches where I attended. 
Now, I wasn't raised up in the Church of Christ. I was raised up in several different denominations. Perhaps some of you were as well, or maybe just one particular denomination. But truth was really not encouraged, was really not enjoined upon you, and it was not emphasized in the family or in your religious life. We went to church all the time as a, as a child. I went two and three times a week. I went to revival meetings, like a lot of you did. And sad to say, I got up about 20, 21 years old, and I didn't know a thing about the Bible because I really never heard the Bible taught, and I wasn't encouraged to search the Bible, really to study the Bible, and to search for truth. That really never was emphasized. That's just the way it was. Now, we're, we were religious, and you know, my parents were very, very religious people. Uh, Dad taught in this church. He taught in a he taught uh, Bible, uh, Bible classes, I guess we'd say, Sunday school. And uh, so did my stepmother. And so they were, they were quite religious people. They were good moral people. But as I looked at the Bible, when I got up about 21, actually, I began a serious study of the Bible, and I was amazed. As I read the Bible, we didn't practice a lot of the things that I was reading, and a lot of the things that I was reading showed that what we were doing was just the opposite of what the Bible said. And uh, I couldn't, I couldn't, I just couldn't even hardly imagine the error that we were in, all of it. I mean, I don't think I could get my mind around it there at first. We were wrong on so many things. And it doesn't mean my, my folks were bad people. They weren't. They had a good reputation in town. They had good morals. We had a nice family. Uh, I was privileged to have a stepmother that was probably in that town, the woman more full of good works than anyone in that town. I've seen her uh, nurse sick people that were dying, I mean several of them, take them into her home and nurse them until they died. Uh, just, just so full of works of all kinds. It's amazing the good works that she did. And yet she knew very little about the Bible and knew very little about the truth. So it was sad, and so as I, as I read the scripture, I could see we've got a lot of mistakes, we've got a lot of error, we have a lot of issues. And it broke my heart. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 to 39, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I'm come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, but he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Jesus said, you must love me more than anyone in your family. You've got to love me more than your father and mother, than your son or daughter, than your daughter-in-law, your mother-in-law, or anyone else in your family. And I read those verses, and then I thought about the error that we were in, and that if I really decided to follow Christ and really got serious about doing what the Bible says, that's going to cause a problem in this family. It's going to take me away from my family because I'm going to have to get up from where I'm at here. This church that I'm in is wrong. The worship is wrong. The doctrines are wrong. The practices are wrong. 
And uh, a lot more so today, I realize that, than I even did back then. But I saw that I had a decision to make. I could sit on the pew, keep my mouth shut, just go ahead and worship, just act like everything was okay, watch all kinds of false doctrines taught and things practiced that were contrary to Scripture, or I could get up and leave and go where the truth was taught and practiced. And I ultimately decided that's what I would do, even though it would divide the family. Now, Jesus said it would, and the Lord said, I didn't come to send peace on earth. I didn't come to send peace. I came to send a sword. I came to set a man at variance against his father, the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Now, the Lord did not want to divide people. That's not what Jesus means here. He just knew that coming to this earth and teaching the truth of His Father, that it would cause division in families if people decided to follow Him. Because He knew that all of these family members wouldn't do it. And when those that uh, would not follow Him did not and refused, and others in the family did, that would cause a separation in that family. And I hated that division. I, I hated the thought of it. But I decided I'm going to follow Jesus, and that's the song, one of them that we sung this morning, I have decided to follow Jesus. And there's no turning back once you, once you do that. So I want to talk about some of the religious error this morning that I discovered that caused me to have to make some changes and change churches and everything else. And I'm doing this for the simple reason that uh, we record these and they go up on the web, and people eventually will hear these very words I'm saying right now, and I'm hoping they'll, they'll cause people to give some thought to it, that we'll always cherish it and give thought to it as well, and that perhaps just by telling a little bit about me and some religious error that I discovered, that could be a help to other people, and uh, that it will be a strength to us. Remember, the last thing Paul dealt with was false doctrine and how Timothy was to preach the truth and uh, how he warned him that people would not always endure sound doctrine. One of the first things that I discovered I'd been wrong about was the church. I had heard all my life that there are many bodies, many churches, and one's as good as another, and I'd, I'd seen the bumper stickers, bumper stickers that said, join the church of your choice. or attend the church of your choice. And there are people that think that here in America, because we have religious freedom, and I'm glad we do, but this, just because we have religious freedom, that it, that's a good thing for us to be able to just pick anything we want to, and that really it doesn't matter. In other words, one church is as good as another, just choose the one of your choice. That's really the thought here. It's not so much the liberty to choose, but just choose any of them because one's as good as another one. That's really what people mean. And then I looked at passages like Ephesians 4. Let's turn over there to Ephesians 4. Look there on the back or whatever. Ephesians 4, verse 4 to 6. Because in these verses, Paul names seven things of which he says there's only one. Seven things. Paul said there is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, 
who is above all and through all and in you all. So he names seven things right here that he says there's one of. And I want to start down there at the last one. He says there's one God. And who is that one God? That one God he named as the Father. So he's named six other things before that. He named one baptism. What is that? That's immersion in water for the remission of our sins. He named one faith. And that's the New Testament. And there's only one. Then he said there's one Lord. Who is that? That's Jesus. He said there's one hope. And that's eternal life in heaven. He said there's one Spirit. And that's the Holy Spirit. And then now I'm coming back to the first thing that he mentioned. He said there's one body. What is the body? In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, He said, And that put all things under His feet, and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. He says there's one of each one of these things. Now let's ask ourselves the question, is one God as good as another? And surely we'd say, well, no, there's, there's only one God. There's one God and Father. Is one Lord as good as another? No, there is no Lord like Jesus, is there? One Lord's not as good as another. Why should we think that one body, one church, is as good as another? There's only one. There is one body, one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. One church is not as good as another. I've never seen those verses. They, they sound elementary to you. And you that were raised up in the church, you never, you never once considered that there might be anything different than that simple truth. But that's a profound truth if you didn't grow up hearing that. And if you were taught that it didn't make any difference where you went to church, that one was just as good as another, that's how I was raised. And a lot of you were raised that way. And that made a, a big impact upon me. These are things that I was beginning to discover that bothered me. Number two, <clears throat> all the churches where I attended, seemed like as a boy, we had women pastors. And... Uh, when I was just a small boy, three, four years old, the church that we attended had a woman pastor. My mother died when I was age nine, and this pastor preached her funeral. She was our pastor. Sometimes when we had revival meetings, I'm talking week-long revival meetings, we brought in a woman evangelist. And so I would hear a woman preach every night all week long in long, protracted meetings hour, two-hour meetings, and I was used to that. All my Sunday school teachers were women. The churches that I attended uh, sometimes had services where people stood up and testified. Uh, they gave what we call testimonials. <clears throat> they would stand up in the assembly and, and tell what the Lord meant to them or what He had done for them and just kind of give personal experiences and testimony. Usually that was women. The men seemed like where I attended church wouldn't do anything. 
They just didn't want to participate, and most of the time, prayers were led by the women. I was used to that all the time, nearly, a woman leading the prayer. Very rarely did a man lead the congregation in prayer. It was mostly the women in that church. And then I began to read scriptures like 1 Corinthians 14 there, if you'll look at verse 34 to 37. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, and that means ask a question, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. What came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Now I'd never read those verses, shame on me. I assure you our pastor never used them. She never preached from those texts. I never once heard them mentioned in a sermon. Never heard them referred to in the assembly at any time, never. I didn't know they were in the New Testament. That shocked me. Now you grew up, a lot of you hearing that, and it was just a common truth to you. Very insignificant probably in some ways because not that important because you'd heard it all your life. But imagine being 20 years old and you didn't know that was in the Bible. Imagine that. And so I decided here I'm going to have to do something about this. I get amused sometimes when I turn on television I'll see a woman preaching and she'll talk about how God has called her to preach. And uh, obviously God called her to keep silence. That's what He called her to do. But she claims that He's called her to preach, see. And so she uses that to justify her ministry and things like that. First Timothy chapter 2 was another passage I found I didn't know was in there. Verse 11 and 12, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And I had no idea that was in there. It's a parallel passage to 1 Corinthians 14. And incidentally, both passages apply, apply only one place, and that's the assemblies. Outside the assembly, we have example after example where women can teach men. And so if we're in a home study type setting, a woman can actually teach the study. Nothing wrong with that. But in the assemblies of God's people, she there is not to even ask a question. There she cannot comment and take a, a lead that's been given to the man to do. She is to learn in silence with all subjection, not partial. And he says, I don't suffer, wherever this passage applies, he's, he says, I don't suffer a woman to teach or to usurp authority over the man. In other words, she cannot engage in any activity in the lead that's been given to the man to do. And it's not because she's second-rate and inferior, it's just that that's not her role in the assembly. That's not her role there. Every one of us are in submission to people, if we'll think about it. We submit to the sheriff of this county. We submit to the authorities that are over us. The church submits to elders where there's an eldership. There's just all kinds of people that we submit to. These children submit to their parents but it doesn't make the parents better than the children, does it? Their role at their age is submission. And the role of a woman in the assembly is submission. And I'd never seen that taught anywhere. I'd never heard it taught. 
And then I was reading it right out of the Bible, and I learned there it's a commandment of Jesus. Paul said, acknowledge the things that I'm writing unto you are the commandments of the Lord, not His suggestions. This is what Jesus says about it. And that's what makes it important. There are other commandments in 1 Corinthians 14 for us men to speak one by one. For languages in our assemblies to be interpreted or the speaker must keep silent. There's all kinds of regulations. God wants a good orderly assembly. That's what He's after so that the church can be edified. And so I, I saw these scriptures here. Now what, what was I supposed to do with these verses? Ignore them? Go ahead and just go on down to church where I'd been going and listen to the woman preach every Sunday and lend my support financially to that and my influence to that and my attendance to that, see. And I decided I, I, need to, I just need to get up and move on. This is not right. And of course that divided the family because the rest of the family stayed and they're still there. They still believe that way and they still practice that way and they see nothing wrong with it. And they don't want to talk about it. And that's just how it is. Another doctrine that I began to see was the idea that for baptism, we can sprinkle, we can pour, we can immerse. It makes no difference. Take your choice. One's as good as another. Some of the churches that I grew up in practiced immersion and they wouldn't baptize any other way. And a couple of others that I attended growing up did nothing hardly but sprinkle water on people. That was their practice. And I was told, well, it doesn't make any difference. Just choose whichever one you prefer. But I noticed most people chose the sprinkling because that's so much easier. Why, after all, go get wet when you don't have to? Why should the preacher especially go get himself wet or herself wet when they can just dip some water and bring it to the person and administer it on them? Or why should a person get completely submerged, get their clothing wet when the water can simply be sprinkled on their head? This seemed to be the preferred practice. And then I discovered some things about baptism. And let's notice some things. That first of all, Romans 6 and 4, if you're reading with me, baptism. is a burial. Well, I didn't know that. And that may sound very elementary to you, but it wasn't to me. Paul said, Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. I discovered that there is a resurrection in baptism. Look at Colossians 2. And verse 12, obviously if you've got a burial, you've got a resurrection. Buried with Him in baptism, Paul said, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised Him from the dead. So in baptism, there's a burial in water and a rising up out of it. Actual resurrection. That doesn't occur with sprinkling. With sprinkling, there is no burial. There is no resurrection. I hadn't noticed that. Then as I read further, John 3, verse 23, I found that baptism requires something. It requires much water in order to do it. The Bible says that John also was baptizing at Anon near to Salim because there was much water there. 
and they came and were baptized. John picked this very spot because there was much water there. Now, if John was practicing sprinkling, why does he need to worry about a place that has much water? Would not a little vessel of some kind that he could just get a few drops in, would that not be sufficient to, to put water upon hundreds and hundreds of people? Of course it would. But John chose this place of much water, and if anybody knew how to baptize, surely it was John the Baptist, because God sent him to baptize. Certainly God would have told him what he wanted. And incidentally, the name Baptist is really not John's name, it's really his title. It means immersionist, John the immersionist. That's what he did. And then I noticed that the Bible even gave an example of immersion for baptism. Acts chapter 8, let's notice verse 35 to 39. Acts 8, 35 to 39. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine house, or with all thine heart thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water. Now this is immersion. They went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. There was immersion practiced here. Both of them stopped the chariot they were riding in. They went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, it says. He baptized him. That means he immersed him. And then he says they came up out of the water. There was the action. Well, I'd never been taught that. I'd never seen that. I didn't know that was in Scripture. Sounds elementary to people that have, have heard this taught and maybe seen this all their life. But if you're raised up where you're taught that it really doesn't make any difference, that you can just have your choice, where a burial is not emphasized and a resurrection is not emphasized, then certainly this was an eye-opening passage to me. And then number four, I had been taught all my life that infant baptism was a wonderful practice, that it was good to do, that these baptisms are acceptable, that God is pleased, that God uh, loves it when children are dedicated to the Lord like this, when water is sprinkled upon them, when they're brought up before Him and water is administered. He's well pleased with this activity, but I discovered that this was in violation, that the Scripture never taught the baptism of infants. In fact, as I looked at the Bible, I could see that before we're baptized, the Bible requires that we be taught, that we have teaching, that we need to understand some things, that we know what we're, need to know what we're doing, that there needs to be some instruction given to us. And that's in the very Great Commission. In Matthew 28, if you read there with me at verse 19, Jesus said, Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Now notice what the Lord, look at the order that He gave. He said, Go teach people, then baptize them. Alright? So the Lord then wanted us taught 
before we're baptized. Taught about what? Taught about what it's about. Taught about Jesus. Taught some things about this. We need to understand what we're doing. When you just take water and place it on an infant, the infant, of course, can't be taught. It knows nothing about what's happening. It has no understanding. In fact, it will never remember it. It will never remember. I remember someone telling me one time when I asked them, I said, have you had a baptism? Have you ever been baptized? They said, well, I, I was when I was a baby. And I said, well, tell me about it. And I did that to make them think, not to be a smart aleck. Tell me about it. Tell me what your experience was. Well, of course, they couldn't tell me. They didn't know they had a baptism unless somebody had told them. See. And so such an important act done to an infant, that infant will have no recollection of that whatsoever and would know nothing about it if an adult didn't tell them what happened. That's interesting. Secondly, Mark 16, 16, the Bible teaches that before we're baptized, we need faith, we need to believe. Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. So we need to believe before we have baptism. Actually, there's not an act that can please God unless it's preceded by faith or accompanied by faith. The Bible says in Hebrews 11:6, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We can't please God without believing. And an infant just can't believe, can they? Uh, Romans 14 and 23 says that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. We have to have faith that, that, uh, in what we're doing. All right? So belief comes before baptism. Number three, we are to repent before we're baptized. Repent is a change of mind. Repentance is that leads to a change of conduct and action. Acts 2 and 38, on the day of Pentecost, Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So he placed repentance first, and then baptism afterward. And if we don't repent before baptism, actually, we go into the water a dry sinner, we come up a wet sinner, because there's been no change, there's been no repentance. And finally, there must be a confession of our faith in Jesus before baptism. And we saw that in an example there that we read a moment ago. Look up there again at Acts 8 and verse 35. Philip opened his mouth, began at the same scripture, and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest, with all thine heart thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There's his confession. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. There must be teaching and belief and repentance and confession before baptism. And as I thought about it, when you baptize an infant first, then you, you actually remove the order that Jesus gave, and you put baptism before teaching or belief or repentance 
or confession. In other words, you sprinkle water on a baby, later as it gets older you teach it so that it can believe and repent and make a confession of its faith in Christ. But you see the baptism occurs first and then these other things occur afterward. That completely reverses the order that Jesus gave because He placed teaching and belief and repentance and confession before the act of baptism. Infant baptism just completely reverses the order. Completely. And I could just see that I'd seen this practice all my life where infants were brought up and water was administered and then later on hopefully they were taught and could believe, repent, and confess. See. Then uh, number five, I was taught that in order to be saved you called on the name of the Lord. Called on the name of the Lord. And I thought that meant calling on God to save you. I thought it meant prayer. I thought it really meant the sinner's prayer. Accepting Christ, as some say, or inviting Jesus into the heart. That's what I was taught calling on the name of the Lord meant. And when I was about nine years old, I remember coming up in a church service and quite young, quite a young boy. I was convicted of sin. And uh, we had an old wooden altar up in the front of the church building. Everything took place around the altar. And if you wanted to be saved, well, they're, they're in a church service. You came up and you knelt down around the altar. So I got down on my knees. And other people in the church that were members of that church came and they knelt around with me. Some on the other side, some beside me. Uh, they might pat you on the back or such things as that. And they would pray and I would pray. And the, the whole gist of it was this, that when you've got a good feeling, everything was based on your feelings. That's what uh, you that haven't been raised this way need to try to understand about people. When you've got a good feeling, that meant that the burden of your sins had been lifted. And the way you told that was that you felt good, you felt better, see. And so you'd been taught that if you go up and pray and others pray with you, you'll get this feeling. And that's what I was looking for, that feeling that burdens are removed. And I got a good feeling from doing that. You know, you just feel better because you feel that's the right thing to do. That's what you've been told to do. And when I got to feeling good, well, I got up. Got up from the altar and went back to my seat. And I went up thinking that I was saved. And when I got home, mom was sick. She was dying of cancer. And I remember going into her bedroom and telling her, Mama, I got saved today. Of course, that tickled her to death because that's the church she attended and she knew what had happened. And she died, at least with that knowledge. And I labored till I was 21 years old thinking I was saved there that day at the altar. I used to have people ask me, well, Pat, how were you saved? I'd say, well, I, I called on the name of the Lord. They'd say, well, tell me about that. So where, where did you get that idea? Well, I'd take them to Acts 2.21 if you're looking there. And Peter on the day of Pentecost quoted Joel and said, it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I said, there it is. And I said, I called on the name of the Lord. I didn't know about Romans 10.13. So I used Acts 2.21. And uh, 
they'd say, well, you need to be baptized. And I'd, I'd say, well, where do you get that? They'd go down to verse 38 in Acts 2. Now, both of these are in Acts 2. Both of them are spoken by Peter. And Acts 2, in verse 21, is to call on the name of the Lord. And then down in verse 38, then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And they'd say, See, you need to be baptized for remission of sins. And I would say, No, I don't. Verse 21 says, I can call on the name of the Lord. And they'd say, Well, no, verse 38 says you've got to be baptized. I'd say, No, 21 says you don't. 21 says just call. And I thought that meant pray to, pray to the Lord, which I did at the altar that day. And so we had a stalemate, and I set up camp on this verse, and they set up camp on their verse, and nothing would budge either one of us. They were just sure they were right, and I was just sure I was right. And actually, uh, there was a way I finally figured out both of us in some ways were right, not exactly, but in Acts 22 and 16, I learned what it means to call on the name of the Lord. I had the wrong concept. It wasn't prayer. In Acts 22 and 16, Paul was told, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. There it is. We call on the name of the Lord in baptism. Now I could see why Peter told them to repent and be baptized after he'd said, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He was just telling them that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then down in verse 38, he told them how to call on the name of the Lord. And uh, that's what Paul was told here in Acts 22, 16. Arise, be baptized, wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now the verses made sense because Peter is the author of both statements and he preached them in the same sermon. And God don't, doesn't have two plans of salvation where he lets me pray for mine and requires somebody else to be baptized. He doesn't have two different plans like that, especially preached by the same preacher in the same sermon. I don't know of anything more confusing than this. See, So this finally solved that issue for me. What the real problem was for me all along, I'd just been told all my life that baptism's not essential. That's the bottom line. I had believed it, and I had a lot of pride because I hadn't done it, because I'd gone to an altar. And frankly, folks, I just didn't want to change. I didn't want to admit that I was wrong. That just took a, that just took a lot out of me to have to admit that I'd been that wrong, especially about being saved. When I had been so vocal that I was, see. I just hated to change. Look down in the bottom center of the chart. And right here is the real problem, and it is with a lot of people today. Let's look at these four different things. Believe, repent, confess, be baptized. Here under believe, there's scripture typed out for us. Let's look at those. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 8 and 24, Jesus said, I said therefore unto you, you shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am He, you shall die in your sins. 
Romans 5 and 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I could understand these verses. Every one of them were clear. They have salvation attached. That if you love, uh, that if you uh, have faith that uh, whoever believes on Him will have everlasting life. That if we don't believe, we'll die in sin. And if we want to be justified, we're justified by faith. I could understand that. I could accept the fact that I've got to believe. That's what the Bible taught. In the next column of repentance, Luke 13, 3, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That's pretty plain, isn't it? It's either repent or perish. Acts 3, 19, repent you therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. I could understand that statement. And in Acts 17, 30, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. So I could understand how you've got to repent. I agreed with that. No problem with that because that's what the Bible said. And then confession, Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then there's another passage here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 15. John said, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Now I could understand those verses, how confession is required. But then there's this idea of baptism. And that's the one that I'd been taught was not essential. But let's read these scriptures here under be baptized. Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. That's not hard to understand. But the simple truth is, I didn't want that verse because it made baptism essential and I'd been taught it wasn't and I didn't want to admit I was wrong. I could see what the verse said. I was dishonest. Acts 2.38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's too plain to argue with, isn't it? That if I'll repent and be baptized, I'll have remission of sins. But I didn't like that passage, because you see, I'd been to the prayer altar, and I didn't want to admit that that was wrong. And then finally, Acts 22 and 16, Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. There is less quibble with that than anything. That if we'll be baptized, we wash away sins in that act. But I would reject these verses for a long time because they contradicted what I had done, and I didn't want to admit I'd been wrong. And finally, it just came down to this. If you want to be saved, you're going to have to do what the Bible says. And so I yielded and I said, you know what, I've just been wrong. And I went and obeyed the Lord in baptism. You know what I got when I did that? The same feeling I got at the prayer altar. As long as you think you're obeying God, you get the feelings that correspond to that. And this time, though, they were based upon truth. I had God's Word. 
I had done what God said, and now the feelings were genuine. I had really been saved. Doctrine is so important, isn't it? Doctrine just affects everything. Doctrine regarding the plan of salvation is just critical. That's our start. And then after that, everything else is attached to doctrine. And Timothy was told, preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They shall turn away their ears from the truth, he said, and shall be turned unto fables. Watch thou in all things, endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. The doctrine. I hope this lesson has been helpful to us today to remind us of the importance of it, to be lovers of truth, to be willing to change when we need to make changes. And if we're in the wrong practice, have the wrong faith, even in the wrong church, then we need to do something about it. If it's going to divide us from the family, then that's what Jesus said would happen. Sometimes we just have to be divided. But we cannot afford not to follow the Bible, not to follow Christ. I hope the lesson blessed you this morning in some way, that you got some good out of it, and that those that may hear it on the website uh, for those that may be listening even right now. And we hope certainly that uh, something comes out of it to help them. Let's be lovers of the truth, lovers of God's Word, and stand for the doctrine, sound doctrine. God bless you. Let's have the invitation, first and last verse, if anyone should need the Lord today. Not in a hurry. You're invited to come as we stand and sing. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.